animal behaviorist Temple Grandin understands the first rule of TED Talks, know your audience. Autism is a very big continuum that goes from very severe, the child remains nonverbal, all the way up to brilliant scientists and engineers. And I actually feel at home here because there's a lot of autism genetics here. You wouldn't have any... Um... Dr. Grandin earned a special place in the history of autism. She was one of the first people to publicly disclose their autism. And that helped break down social barriers of shame and stigma and misunderstanding that had literally shrouded the lives of autistic people for generations. In the foreword to Grandin's 1986 book, Thinking in Pictures, the neurologist Oliver Sacks wrote that Grandin's openness about her autism provided, in his words, a bridge between our world and hers allowing us to glimpse into a quite other sort of mind. On today's program, a conversation about the history of autism and about our understanding of those quite other sorts of minds and the changing landscape for autistic people in our society. This is the Hear Me Now podcast coming to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. With this podcast episode, we're inaugurating a project to collect oral histories of autism from autistic people and people who work alongside them or care for them or love them. If you're interested in being a part of that storytelling effort, you'll find a link on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Click on the link labeled, Tell Us Your Story. We're going to begin by tapping the storytelling skills of a veteran science and tech reporter, Steve Silberman. In 2015, Silberman's book, Neurotribes, was published and soon took a place on the New York Times bestseller list. And in Britain, it was awarded the Samuel Johnson Prize for best nonfiction writing in English. The work was groundbreaking, exploring both the legacy of autism but also the future of neurodiversity. It brought clarity where there had often been confusion, and it began to answer questions that have led to even more fascinating questions. I'm pleased to welcome Steve Silverman to the Hear Me Now podcast. Steve, it's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome. Hey, buddy. I'm very honored to be here. Thanks so much for asking. It's a pleasure. Autism is a topic you've been tracking now for years, and I'm curious, given everything that you've learned about it after what I'm sure are many hundreds of conversations with researchers and autistic people and family members, how do you describe it? What is autism? I'm going to give you a very personal, uh, you know, rather than a sort of clinical answer. When I started writing about autism uh, back in 2001, uh, I was a science reporter for Wired magazine, and I approached autism as a diagnosis, a syndrome, you know, a condition that was associated with a checklist of deficits and impairments that define that condition. But as I got to know autistic people better, as I spoke to researchers, as I started to really get to know autism more from the inside by hearing the perspectives of autistic people, mm -hmm. I started to think of autism more as 
a, a way of being human, a natural variation. Like, uh, in a sense, you know, a biologist might notice a, a new kind of flower out there, you know, growing. And so I stopped thinking of autism as uh, associated with, a you know, a medical condition or a list of impairments and started thinking of it more as a way of being human and one that was not in particular supported by people who did not have autism, which included, uh, you know, many of the clinicians of the 20th century. So I started writing about a diagnosis and ended up writing about a community that was on its way towards autonomy and fighting for its civil rights. Hence the name of your book, Neurotribes. Yep. I was tired of you know, basically so many words associated with autism have the negative judgment built in, mm. you know, kind of baked into the word autism spectrum disorder. Well, who am I to say what the order of the universe is supposed to be? So uh, I stopped thinking of it as kind of an automatic, like less than, and started thinking of it as just a different way of being human. Steve, do you remember when that notion came to you? Was it a sort of aha moment or did you slowly come to a realization that your thinking had changed? That's a very interesting question. And the answer is that there were several aha moments as well as sort of a slow ripening of my understanding. Uh, probably the very first moment that I started to doubt you know, the inherited idea of what autism is as a, you know, a mysterious, baffling mystery or enigma or puzzle or etc. was when I was writing uh, the first thing I ever wrote about autism, which was an article called The Geek Syndrome in Wired <laughs> in 2001. Such a perfect title for a Wired story. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, there's a very germane bit of inside <laughs> information about that title, which is that the editor-in-chief of Wired at the time, Chris Anderson, uh, told me that he wanted to change my title to The Geek Disease. Um, and I, I, you know, I kind of went to the mat against that. And I finally, uh, it's funny, I, I had to prove it to him by showing him that the word disease did not appear in the Autism Society of America website once, you know. But all I can say is, you know, I, I, I point back to the geek syndrome uh, without too much shame because I actually got some things right. But, oh, boy, if it had been called the geek disease, I would have wanted to bury that headline, mm -hmm. you know, in my past forever. But so one of the moments that, you know, the aha moments that changed my mind was when I was researching the geek syndrome. Um, you know, I was reading medical textbooks and interviews with clinicians and uh, talking to researchers up at the University of California in San Francisco, just up the hill from where I live. And so I had, you know, what autistic self-advocates call the medical model, like firmly in my mind. But then one day I was kind of like just, you know, surfing around on the web. And I saw this website called the Institute for the Study of the Neurologically Typical. It had been created by an autistic woman named Laura Tosanchik. And it was a hilarious, pitch-perfect satire of like an American Psychiatric Association listing for, you know, this terrible disorder for which there is no cure <laughs> and which is distinguished by a deficit of attention to detail, 
you know, incredible vulnerability to peer pressure and uh, desire to speak in small talk. So it was hilarious. It had flipped the lens of the medical model around and looked at non-autism or neurotypicality or, you know, the major- the neuromajority uh, under the lens of the medical model. And I thought, boy, that's interesting. Yeah. I've never yeah. seen anything like, you know, I've never seen anything quite like that, except I had seen something quite like it because I am gay. And when I was in high school, of course, uh, homosexuality was listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as a as a medical condition. Yeah. And you could be arrested, you could be put in a mental asylum, etc. And what changed that was a bunch of, you know, uh, gay psychiatrists coming out and also a bunch of street queens doing street actions and they would satirize the medical model. And so it kind of reminded me of that. It was a group of people who, you know, I started to, or that was like the first um, glimpse that I had of what we now call, you know, kind of the neurodiversity movement or neurodiversity culture. That's fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things that was fascinating about it, by the way, was that it was part of this sort of standard description of autism. Autistic people don't get humor. They do not get sarcasm, you know. And then here was this hilarious, you know, (laughs) satirical website. And then the second huge aha moment was an autistic self-advocate named Ari Niemann, who launched uh, an organization called the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network when he was a teenager in high school, had told me, basically, to go to a retreat for autistic people called Autreat. It was run by autistic people for autistic people. And I actually had to sort of get a waiver from the organizer of the conference to be there as a non-autistic person. And, uh, you know, I remember I was uh, looking for the bus that was leaving for Autreat from the Buffalo, New York Greyhound station. And so I'm like looking for a group of autistic people. Um, And I'm thinking like, okay, what should I be looking for? Will they be like rocking back and forth? Will they be sitting apart? You know, will will they look sad? You know, and so I'm looking around the Buffalo Greyhound station, which is not, shall we say, you know, the most uplifting (laughs) setting in the world. But I saw this one group of people who were laughing, hugging, having fun, jumping up and down. They were the autistic people. (laughs) And so we went to Autreat and I spent uh, almost a week there uh, fully immersed in what I called in my book Autistic Space. And I noticed a bunch of stuff, which was that for one thing, Autistic people not only did get humor and and, uh, sarcasm and everything, they were hilarious. Um, Case in point, Ari had been appointed to the National Council on Disability by President Obama, which caused a bunch of right-wingers to raise a ruckus and say, having an autistic person on the National Council on Disability is like having a blind surgeon. Uh, And, you know, all this awful stuff. But finally, they dropped their objections and Ari was seated on the council. And the next day he came to Autreat. So he was like the homecoming hero. And he walks into the room and a young woman at the back of the room says, we love you, Ari, 
if we were capable of feeling such an emotion. <laughs> so when I came back from Autry and sat down in this chair or a chair much like it in the same position, um, I, you know, I started typing, you know, kind of my first chapters. And I'm like, okay, so what is the checklist of deficits and dysfunctions that I should type here to so that my readers know what autism is? And I literally, you know, stopped myself and said, Steve, stop it. This is not how they are. You are just with these people. They're, they have much richer inner lives than that. So that was one of the big aha moments that changed my mind. That's wonderful. The history of the condition is really fascinating. It goes all the way back to pre-war Vienna and the work of a Austrian pediatrician whose name will be pretty familiar to listeners, I think. Hans Asperger. Yes, it does. Um, in fact, it goes back farther than that, in that uh, there were descriptions of people who were clearly autistic in the 19th century. And then in the early 20th century, a uh, physician in uh, the former Soviet Union, Grunia Sukareva, uh, described a bunch of teenagers in wonderfully humanistic and compassionate detail who clearly had what would later be called Asperger syndrome. But yes, um, you know, sort of the one of the things that my book did was that while I was writing it, I figured out that the timeline of autism's discovery, which was, you know, reiterated everywhere from thousands of textbooks to Wikipedia, was that autism was, quote unquote, discovered by this guy, Leo Connor in the early 1940s. And then in some amazing coincidence, um, it was independently discovered by this guy, Hans Asperger, uh, in Vienna a year later. That all turned out to be wrong. In fact, um, I discovered that autism and indeed the autism spectrum, even as we now call it, was discovered by Hans Asperger and his Jewish colleagues, George Frankel and Annie Weiss at the University of Vienna in the mid-1930s. Mm. And many of their insights were incredibly prescient. For instance, at a time when science was just learning about the role of genes in certain hereditary conditions, Asperger speculated that Autism was caused by the interaction of multiple genes. There was no autism gene. And yet when I wrote The Geek Syndrome in 2001, all these parents were, you know, the kind of Silicon Valley rich parents were hoping to find the autism gene. So, you know, <laughs> Asperger and his colleagues had already figured out that that was wrong uh, in the 1930s. And they also had a very, I would say, compassionate and humanistic view of how to treat autistic people up to a crucial point, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, for example, Asperger talked about a kid who became obsessed with geometry when he was like two or three and would uh, draw triangles and circles in the sand. And instead of telling him, you know, will you stop doing that? That's annoying. You know, pay attention to your other subjects or your friends or whatever. She encouraged that uh, interest. And he ended up badgering his teachers to give him advanced tutoring in math because they thought that he was too intellectually disabled to understand it. So he got that tutoring because he demanded it uh, and then ended up going to university where in, uh, I believe, his first or second year of university, 
he detected an error in one of Isaac Newton's proofs, and he ended up becoming an assistant professor of astronomy while remaining, uh, as uh, Asperger put it, very autistic. Um, he, you know, he wouldn't recognize people he had met the week before while passing them in the street, etc. And so many of the aspects of the model of autism that Asperger and his Jewish colleagues, Frankel and Weiss, came up with were very prescient. But the problem is that in 1938, the uh, you know Nazi forces marched over the mountains and occupied Vienna, the Anschluss, you know, with tremendous violence against Jews. Frankel and Weiss had already gotten out because the things were looking bad uh, for the Jews, and the university was being turned into a, uh, you know, sort of a sweatshop of eugenic Nazi ideas. Meanwhile, in Berlin, eugenics laws were passed that specifically targeted children with hereditary disabilities. And I noticed that uh, two of the largest categories of children who were exterminated by the Nazis in a sort of practice run for the Holocaust were kids with epilepsy and kids with schizophrenia. And because the autism diagnosis had not yet been formulated, most of the kids who were autistic were probably diagnosed with either either epilepsy or schizophrenia or both. Mm. So... Uh, that uh, horrible extermination effort was called Action T4. And so after Frankel and Weiss left, Asperger decided to stay on at the university. And there's been a lot of controversy in recent years about what his role was once the Nazis started exterminating children. My thought is that he knew it was happening, I believe, but I do not condemn him as stridently as uh, some of the people uh, are doing out there, because I think he was in a very, very difficult position. And I think he was trying to save the kids that he could. Did he stay at the university through the duration of the war? Yes, he did. He stayed through everything. And and he wrote his paper, which, uh, you know, has in it this kind of special plea for the value of the lives of autistic people. Um, and, you know, in the context of normal psychiatry, that plea is somewhat um, unusual. Like, you notice it. Like, why is he speaking up like this? And, yeah, well, he was speaking up like that because he was being asked to exterminate um, these kids. Yes, he stayed. What happened to Frankel and Weiss turned out to be the biggest historical scoop of my book, which is that when Connor wrote his paper at Johns Hopkins in, in uh, Baltimore in the early 1940s, it was assumed that he had no connection with Asperger whatsoever. Well, that was completely wrong. In fact, Connor and his wife had done something really heroic, and they had rescued a bunch of Jewish clinicians who were under threat by the Holocaust, including Frankel and Weiss. Mm. So when Connor saw his first autistic patient, a guy named Donald T., um, he did not know what to make of him. And he wrote, I saw the, the card on which he wrote, schizophrenia? So he sent him to George Frankel, who knew exactly what to make of him, because Frankel, Weiss, and Asperger had seen hundreds of autistic people by then, at all ages and at all sort of, you know, 
levels of, of disability from, um, you know, that assistant professor of astronomy that I spoke of earlier to kids who couldn't talk and kids who were uh, needed 24-7 support. So they call that range the autistic continuum uh, within their own communications in the office. So that was clearly the precursor to the autism spectrum. But Connor defined autism much more narrowly, and he ended up, instead of talking about the role of genes, unfortunately, he ended up sort of jumping on a bandwagon of mother-hating, he attributed autism, to refrigerator mothers and fathers. Um, That idea was popularized uh, hugely, uh, much later by a guy named Bruno Bettelheim, who was a complete fraud. Meaning people who were cold? Yes. Cold, ambitious, super yuppies, basically. And, you know, what Connor was probably picking up on was autistic traits in the parents. But it turned out, you know, that Asperger and his colleagues had already figured out what was going on there, which was that, yes, the parents had autistic traits because it was hereditary and genetic, uh, but that all that opened up avenues of understanding and communication between the parents and the kids, whereas Connor just blamed the parents for causing autism. And furthermore, and the, that had a very dramatic effect on his um, advice to parents, which was he told parents to put their kid in an institution and move on with their lives, both to protect the kid from the allegedly, you know, damaging influence of the parents and to protect the parents and other siblings from the effects of the kid's autism. Connor's theory ended up turning autism into a source of silence and shame Mm -hmm. for families for the rest of the 20th century. So you have a group of children who have been diagnosed with something, but they probably wouldn't have used the term autism, who are now institutionalized. Is, is that right? Well, that's kind of right. They, they were often diagnosed with um, what was called childhood schizophrenia. And that came from, uh, you know, sort of a bunch of uh, confusion that I write about on Neurotribes uh, that's hard to sum up in a, in a sentence. But um, basically, there was this conflict between psychiatrists who thought uh, that Autistic kids grew up to become schizophrenic adults. That's what Leo Connor thought, and he was completely wrong. Connor went to his grave considering autism a form of quote-unquote childhood psychosis, um, and that's wrong. Autism has nothing to do with psychosis. I mean, sometimes they overlap, but they're not the same thing. So basically, in the 50s and 60s, there was a, a quote-unquote epidemic of childhood schizophrenia in mental institutions in the United States, including, by the way, um, Langley Porter Institute, which is just like a short walk up the hill from where I live in San Francisco. And when I got a hold of case descriptions of uh, cases of childhood schizophrenia from Langley Porter, it was autism, it was autism, it was autism. It just wasn't called that. It was called childhood schizophrenia. So where did that epidemic of childhood schizophrenia go? Well, now we understand that childhood schizophrenia, while it does exist, is very, very rare, whereas autism is very, very common. And so uh, that was one of the places that 
I found, you know, I, as I was writing Neurotribes, I kind of played a little game with myself of find the hidden populations of autistic people right. in the 20th century. And behind that diagnosis was one of those places. So so put a pin in that fact that there, there was, quote unquote, an epidemic of childhood uh, schizophrenia. And fast forward to the 90s, where a belief that routine childhood vaccinations cause autism. And that idea sort of took over like wildfire um, in the popular press and discussions about autism. I mean, everyone was talking about it. I remember that the argument was, you know, there didn't used to be so much autism. Where were these kids before all these vaccines came to play? And what you're saying is they were in institutions, they were labeled as schizophrenics. Right. And that's something that I want to make clear, which is that even though um, I've done a lot of work that supports the idea that vaccines have nothing to do with autism and, and oh, by the way, Andrew Wakefield, the gastroenterologist who uh, really uh, launched that theory, was a complete hoax and fraud and utterly corrupt and had a um, competing patent for the formulation of the MMR vaccine that he hoped would, you know, make him rich once he uh, put the stink around the MMR vaccine by claiming it caused autism. And in fact, I, I have him on record saying, I knew nothing about autism before I wrote my, you know, famous paper. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, and he, you know, he, he did all kinds of things. But what I want to say is that I completely understand why parents were attracted to that theory. Oh, absolutely. The problem was that there was this inexplicable, until I wrote my book, inexplicable, you know, sort of ski jump curve like climate change of uh, estimates of autism prevalence and autism diagnoses that started in the, in the early 90s. So it's like, what's going on there? And if you looked at any website for any parents' autism organization, you would see that, you know, that alarming, you know, steep curve of rising diagnoses. And, you know, they would often say, like, in 1950, autism was... Uh, determined to be, you know, one in 60,000. In 1960, it was one, in, you know, so they would have this, you know, kind of suspenseful horror movie build up to now it's one in 88, you know, and you're supposed to be scared. Well, it turns out that was very intentional uh, that the diagnosis became much more common because in the late 80s, a British cognitive uh, psychologist named Lorna Wing was asked by a uh, you know representative of the public health um, to estimate the number of autistic kids in a multicultural suburb of London called Camberwell. And um, she and a colleague named Judith Gould went into Camberwell and started looking for autistic kids everywhere. And boy, did they ever find them. And the prevailing um, model of autism in the only model, really, because Asperger's writing were, was had been completely forgotten, in part because he wrote in German, and German papers were not very popular after the Holocaust, let's put it that way. Um, uh, although Connor almost certainly read that paper because he read that journal. Um, but he, ne he did not 
uh, even mention Asperger's name until very late in his career. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and very dismissively, he said something like, you know, oh, what, the, you know, what Asperger described, that's a completely different condition. So Connor's monolithic, narrow, and basically, you know, white people, upper middle class white people. And so, you know, one thing that distinguished upper middle class white people was that they had access to Leo Connor's office right. to get a diagnosis. You know, right. so so anyway, so they they walked into Camberwell and saw all these kids who had what they called bits and pieces of Connor syndrome. So they might help their mom do the dishes and then go to their room to listen to their favorite record 25 times over afterwards. Mm. But they clearly love their parents. And instead of not being interested in people at all, they clearly wanted to have friends. They just didn't know how to do reciprocal social interactions gracefully. And so uh, Wing and Gould started to think Connor's model of autism is bogus. It's too narrow. We should get rid of it. But they quickly figured out, after writing a paper or two suggesting that, they quickly figured out that there was so much sort of vested interest in the autism uh, diagnosis in the field that instead of trying to replace Connor's model, they should supplement it. So they formulated the diagnosis called Asperger syndrome. Note that Asperger and Frankel and Weiss never came up with a term or even you know, a, a, a model mm -hmm. uh, of autism called Asperger syndrome. What they came up with was the autistic continuum or what we now call the spectrum. But one reason why uh, Wing wanted to call it Asperger syndrome was because Connor and Bettelheim had stigmatized autism so much that parents didn't want to believe the diagnosis. Because if you gave a kid a diagnosis of autism, it, there was so much cultural baggage around it that it was like suggesting to the parents that they were inadequate or hostile or damaging or toxic parents. Right. So they got rid of the word autism, you know, came up with this fascinating new <laughs> diagnosis called Asperger syndrome, got that into the DSM. And then all these people who would have been left out of the diagnosis before were able to get support and help. The diagnoses start soaring, as indeed, you know, Wing and Gould intended. And then Andrew Wakefield, this doofus, uh, comes along and says, oh, it's because of vaccines. He just didn't know anything. But because it was a good story, you know, I know that you're interested in, in the role of narrative in medicine, Sean. And um, it was a very good story. It just turned out to be completely false. Right. And it certainly provided parents who were in a, a situation where they were being blamed and that their parenting was being talked about as a sort of toxic precursor to their child's condition, it gave them an out, a sort of psychological out to find something else that was responsible. Yeah, exactly. And it was a very, you know, sort of plausible uh, explanation. Like, you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time, um, you know, disputing anti-vaxxers because they've done a tremendous amount of um, damage to the world. And I must say, more damage since Neurotribes was published because of the uh, anti-vaccine and anti-masking um, rhetoric around COVID, very much encouraged by the GOP. But, um, you know, basically it was a plausible story because 
everyone knows Big Pharma is, it can be really corrupt. Big Pharma had totally, you know, concealed deaths, like with the drug, the heart drug Vioxx. Like they had totally like, you know, actually killed, you know, people and then tried to cover it up. And also, you know, a lot of the parents were, um, you know, say they were my age. So we remember Watergate. We remember, you know, the mass corruption of, uh, you know, Nixon and all that. So it was like all of a sudden there's this unexplained rise in autism diagnoses. And I mean, that was really what inspired me to write Neurotribes was that Geek Syndrome comes out uh, in 2001 Hardly anybody's even heard of autism, really. It's just starting to to get around. Um, and, uh, you know, and then 10 years follows. I'm still writing for Wired, but about other stuff. Um, I thought that my article, The Geek Syndrome, would be completely ignored because I filed it right before 9-11. And mm. so it was supposed to be on the cover of the magazine. And then 9-11 happened, and I thought, oh, well, okay. That article will never see the light of day, really, you know. Um, but instead, what happened was I got email about the geek syndrome for 10 years. But it was not like, you know, I gave my kid a vaccine, and now he's autistic. It was more like I am autistic and was told I was a genius my whole, uh, you know, school career, but I've never been able to have a job because I can't get through a face-to-face -face interview or now I understand why my uncle used to talk about such and such battle of World War II all the time. You know, in other words, there are artistic people everywhere, but they were wrestling with much more basic um, problems of access to human services like housing, employment, health care. Uh, this was before the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so I thought, why is everyone talking about vaccines? Like, it's not that I mean, I kind of knew why they were doing it, but it was also I knew it was wrong, particularly after a bunch of studies came out that tested uh, Wakefield's hypothesis. And so why, you know, I, I was asking myself, why is everyone obsessed with the wrong questions about autism? And I realized that what I would have to do is tell a story that was as compelling as the vaccine story. But unlike the vaccine story, it was a true story. And it really did explain that, you know, that spike in diagnoses. I'm talking to Steve Silberman, author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. When did you see a turn? Uh, and I mean a turn towards thinking about how autistic people can function in society sort of happily and productively. When when did it go from being a very grim diagnosis to a livable condition that can be accommodated? Well, that happened over time and is mostly um, attributable to the efforts of autistic self-advocates. And mm -hmm. um, two of them that come to mind, um, I mean, obviously my book helped, but it was but it was going in that direction already. Um, and I, you know, in a sense, I got to um, surf this wave of awareness uh, in a way that probably only comes to a writer once in life. Um, but uh, it was pretty amazing because when I started writing Neurotribes, um, I thought that I was, I mean, to be honest, I thought I was, quote unquote, committing career suicide. Like that was the phrase that would ring in my mind at three in the morning 
um, because I knew that I was writing a book that was unlike any other autism book that had ever been written. But I thought maybe that was a bad sign, you know? And so I was like, I didn't even send any chapters to my incredibly patient editor for like five years because it was I had been told she was a tough case. And, you know, that if she didn't like the chapters that she might scotch the deal, you know, that turned out to be wrong, you know, and plus my editor loved the book. But um, boy, I wish I'd known that while I was writing it. But, you know, basically what what changed things was uh, the autistic self-advocacy movement and also the popularity of the first autistic adult to come out in a sort of a mass way, Temple Grandin. Um, Temple Grandin is an industrial designer. She designs uh, facilities for livestock. Um, One of the ways that she does that, she very much empathizes with animals, as many autistic people do. And so she sees the facilities from the animal's perspective. uh, And that helps her design facilities that are less frightening uh, for livestock. But anyway, so uh, Oliver Sacks, she wrote a book called Emergence. Oliver Sacks wrote a profile of Temple in The New Yorker called An Anthropologist on Mars, which then became the title essay of one of his great bestsellers. And Oliver Sacks was not only, you know, my friend, but he was also an incredibly compassionate and precisely observant clinician. And An Anthropologist on Mars was far and away the most humane um, portrait of an autistic person that had ever been written to that point in history. And it's it's profound that when uh, Temple Grandin wrote her autobiography, Emergence, um, she wrote it with a, a ghostwriter or a partner, collaborator. Um, and so when Oliver first heard about that book, he assumed that the ghostwriter must have done you know, the heavy lifting of turning it into a story because autistic people were allegedly not interested in narratives. Um, but then once Oliver started to read Temple's papers in the, you know, livestock industry magazines or whatever, um, he saw that she had a very inimitable voice and that she yeah. was writing as herself. And what's so interesting about Emergence is that the first editions of it uh, carried an introduction by a guy named Bernie Rimland, who helped launch the Autism Parents Movement in America. And he, I talk about him a lot in my book, and he was a very mixed figure because he um, did wonderful things for the parents uh, of autistic people. But um, he also was early on to anti-vax long before Wakefield, actually. He probably thought, in fact, Wakefield might have gotten the idea from uh, Bernie Rimland's writing. But um, so basically uh, what happened was Bernie Rimland said that this was Temple's autobiography was a book by a recovered autistic person. She Hmm. used to be autistic. She no longer was. Well, now we know, you know, I mean, Temple Grandin has written many, many, many books since then. She's certainly not anything but a proud autistic person. And so Temple uh, appearing in The New Yorker and then in the in the uh, anthology by Oliver Sacks of his essays. And uh, there was a guy named Jim Sinclair who um, 
as a very brave person, was sort of the Martin Luther King of neurodiversity in a way. Um, and he wrote an essay called Don't Mourn for Us, which was um, the astonishing, um, you know, kind of must read if you're interested in neurodiversity. It's a short essay about um, people treating their autistic children as if they were dead, basically, or as if they were tremendously disappointing. Um, and, you know, Jim spoke up for, he, you know, he, himself and his brothers and sisters um, and said, actually, we, you know, we're us. We're just us. We're, we're you know, independent, um, lovable people. You just may not be able to love us, you know, the way that you're used to, but you can learn, you know. So uh, don't mourn for us and the Temple Grandin um uh, you know, experience of her, her wonderful, you know, personality in the media, um, I think really uh, was the first big push in that direction. Yeah. The subtitle of your book, Neurotribes, includes the line, the future of neurodiversity. What did you mean by that? Well, neurodiversity is a term that was uh, come up with by a woman named Judy Singer, who was a graduate student in Australia uh, and a journalist named Harvey Bloom, who used to write for the New York Times, um, they were in a uh, an online discussion group called Independent Living on the Autism Spectrum um, that was run by a, a programmer in Europe named Martine Decker. Uh, I write in the book how online communities um, provided a safe space uh, for autistic people to communicate, particularly autistic academics. Um, and so some of the earliest, you know, netizens, as, they, as we used to say, right. were autistic um, so because they were autistic people in academia who had access to the to the, you know, the primitive Internet, Usenet, the news groups, all these things that have been completely forgotten. The well. The well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so there was this, you know, uh, online mailing list called Independent Living on the Autism Spectrum. Uh, there were many women on the mailing list. They would talk about, um, you know, uh, how do neurotypicals use eye contact? Like, I don't understand this. And, you know, so they decided collectively that eye contact was obligatory at the beginning of the conversation with a neurotypical, but, you know, then became more optional. So it was like hilariously, you know, knowing but one of the things that Judy noticed was that every single word for autism, impairment, deficit, disorder, syndrome, condition, they were all medical terms. And Judy had been mentored by a, uh, a psychiatrist, I believe, or psychologist maybe, a Jungian psychologist actually, who grew up with polio, so was a wheelchair user. Hmm. And... Uh, that person impressed upon Judy what's known as the social model of disability, which is instead of saying like a disability like autism is a flaw uh, in the person, which should be corrected, uh, it looks at disability in a social context as um, a mismatch between the person's needs for support and, and uh, uh, you know, just living, daily living, 
uh, a mismatch between the person's needs and their environment. So disability is not a flaw located in the person. It's a flaw located in the relationship of the person to society, thus the social model of disability. And so Judy started to think of autism in terms of the social model of disability, even though considering autism a disability wasn't even um, uh, the prevailing belief at the time. The prevailing belief at the time was autism was this baffling mystery, you know, and possibly a plague of some sort, you know. And so she started to think, we need new words um, mm. so that we can talk about who we are and what we are without automatically stigmatizing ourselves. And so she and Harvey Bloom came up with the word neurodiversity, um, you know, noting uh, the existence of words like biodiversity. In a rainforest, biodiversity, meaning a, a wide variety of life forms that can adapt to different conditions, um, uh, increases the resilience of that biological community. And so their notion was that neurodiversity would increase resilience in human communities as we face new challenges like climate change. And I see, you know, people like Greta Thunberg as a neurodivergent response to changing, you know, unpredictably changing conditions in the environment. She's been, she's an, you know, autistic teenager, one of the most outspoken youth leaders in the uh, anti-climate change movement. And she's, you know, totally frank and totally honest and calls out the hypocrisy of, you know, these people who go to these conferences or oil company executives or whatever as complete hypocrites. And she does that in a way that is very autistic, actually. Um, one thing that I have noticed over the years is that uh, a passionate interest in social justice is so closely associated with autism that it could be diagnostic even. Um, many wow. of my autistic friends are, are very keen on social justice and profoundly disturbed um, by hypocrisy and lying. Now, that's not to say everyone. You know, I know autistic liars. You know, I know autistic MAGA fans, you know. But um, I, uh, uh, you know, so I'm not saying that autistic people are all saints. But there is this very keen interest in social justice. And so it was sort of natural that once the community could see itself, um, both in the rising number of diagnoses and also see each other in social media, that they would form a movement to demand their equal rights. Yeah. Well, you know, the empowerment that we've seen among autistic people having the agency to direct their lives and their their futures, it's, it's just such a far cry from the future envisioned in a sort of diagnostic hell that was prevalent when you and I were kids. I mean, if we knew anything about autism, we knew that it was this sort of inescapable, um, there was hopelessness attached to it. And it's so different now, the way we think about autism. That's true. And, you know, I can point to a very, very interesting historical inflection point that hardly anyone notices. Um, everybody knows that Rain Man was, uh, you know, one of, the, well, the first time that most people ever saw an autistic adult on screen. And in fact, 
one thing that's been forgotten about Rayman was how revolutionary that was. It Now it sort of looked back on, even by young artistic self-advocates, as this kind of embarrassing, you know, uh, savant stereotype. Oh, he's counting toothpicks. You know, it's like the autistic equivalent of the boys in the band uh, for, you know, the, right. for gay people. Um, but... Um, it was actually a very revolutionary and groundbreaking film. But here's what's so interesting about it um, that hardly anyone knows. Uh, I, I do have a chapter about it in the book. Um, the real-life autistic characters that Dustin Hoffman based his character of Raymond Babbitt on, they were not in institutions. They were living their lives. Their parents were you might say, early adopters of the neurodiversity paradigm. They were parents who refused to put their kids in institutions. And in fact, one of those parents was Bernie Rimland. And in fact, mm -hmm. one of the models for Raymond ba Babbitt was Mark Rimland, who uh, I met and spent the day with and is one of the most, you know, the, he was when he was young, he was so difficult that, uh, that you know, Bernie launched a parents' movement to, to cure kids like him. Well, anyway, he's now in middle age. He's an artist, and he's just a delightful person. Uh, his, his parents are no longer alive, but he has a very comfortable niche for himself uh, in this town where the Rimlins lived. Um, so the real characters that Rain Man was, was based on, the character of Raymond Babbitt, um, they were not in institutions. And yet, if you remember, at the end of Rain Man... Dustin Hoffman has to go back into the asylum because uh, a um, an autism an autism expert who was otherwise a very good guy named Daryl Trefford told the screenwriter, "No, no, no. You know, in the end, he can't just move to Las Vegas with his brother Tom Cruise to you know, to to dominate the you know the poker table or whatever. You know, he's got to go back into the asylum." Because that's what happens to autistic people. And so Rayman was already onto something early, but then, yeah. you know, it got sort of slapped back by an expert who said, oh, we can't have autistic people just running around in the street. They'd never make it. <laughs> oh, man. I have a, I have a friend who's a MD, PhD, neurologist and psychiatrist and... Um, a lot of his research involves functional MRIs and mapping the brain. And he's made the point to me more than once that, you know, so much of the literature, so much of the research, and, and not just in psychiatry or neurology, but surgery, for instance, talks about the typical brain and, you know, diagrams the typical brain. And he'll look at you and say, no one has a typical brain. Yes. There is no such thing yes. as a typical brain. Absolutely. And the notion of neurodiversity, uh, we might as well just call it being human. Right. Everyone's brain's a little bit different. Right. Well, you know, what's funny is there's a very dramatic demonstration of that in uh, autism research history, which is that um, basically there have been, you know, a million studies. Uh, what causes autism? Too much white matter in the brain. And then they, you know, the, you see the diagrams. Oh, the, look at the, it's white matter, you know. And then like the next study is like, what causes autism? Too little white matter in the brain. <laughs> and then, you know, you look at it, it's like, 
Well, actually, all you're doing is you're describing the brains of one group of autistic people and the next group of autistic people whose brains you might measure might be completely different because everybody has a different brain. Steve, I see that there's another book from you on the horizon, A Taste of Salt. Can you tell me anything about that? Yeah, The Taste of Salt. Um, It's a book about cystic fibrosis. Uh, One of my very best friends has cystic fibrosis. Um, and, uh, the, the seed of the new book, which by the way, will not be coming out for a couple of years. I'm very much working on it now. Um, but the seed of the new book was started when I had this friend who I made online. We met, uh, because we're both fans of the Grateful Dead. That's Steve Silberman, (laughs) co-author of The Skeleton Key, I might add. Right, The Skeleton Key, a dictionary for deadheads. Uh, Very few people know that I wrote both books, but in any case, um, so I'm coming out as a deadhead here. I'm standing squarely in the middle of the Venn diagram at the moment. Right, exactly. Being gay, it's like ridiculous. But um, so, uh, so, you know, basically what happened was I was talking to this guy, Phil, for years about The Grateful Dead online, and he seemed like a really incredibly sweet guy. Um, And so eventually we got to know each other enough that we could sort of confess, you know, the things to each other that we were holding back uh, with the worry that, you know, the other person wouldn't want to be friends with us or something. So I came out to him as gay and, and told him I was very happily married. And, you know, of course he was completely cool that because he's not a monster, you know, he's a good guy. Um, But then he told me, well, you know, I should tell you something. I have this condition called cystic fibrosis. And I was like, oh, what is that? You know, I hadn't heard much of that. And I hadn't heard much about cystic fibrosis, even though I was a science and medical writer. It turns out that the story of cystic fibrosis is one of the most astonishing successes in medical history. But very few people know about it because cystic fibrosis was mistakenly considered very rare, which, if you'll notice, is an echo of... Mm neurotribes. And in neurotribes, a community became aware of itself um, because of changes in the diagnosis and because of the advent of the online world. Um, in in uh, The Taste of Salt, a community becomes aware of itself because they were able to survive their childhood. Whereas when uh, my friend Phil was born, which is not that long ago, he's much younger than me, um, they were uh, people at CF were told you're going to die when you're a teenager or mm. you're going to die when you're 30. And so basically there's a whole generation of people out there who were told that they were going to die pretty soon. So retirement, forget it. You know, having a family of your own, forget it. Having a career, eh, go work at Starbucks, you know. So um, basically this is an entire community that is in the existential position of not thinking that they would be alive at this point and because of various medical successes and not just a new drug called Trikafta, which is a wonderful, amazing, and life-transforming thing, but also because of a bunch of other research I write about, they exist and they're not dead. And so they have to think about what are they going to do with the rest of their lives? And so I thought that was an interesting uh, existential uh, question that I could pursue 
while um, finding out more about, you know, what has kept my friend alive long enough to be my friend in the first place. I can't wait to read it. And I, I hope you'll come and talk with us about it when the book comes out. Thank you. I look forward to it. Steve Silberman is the author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. You'll find links to his website, and TED Talk, and much more on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. It was delightful, John. I appreciate it. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Do us a solid and subscribe. You'll find the Hear Me Now podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you get your audio on demand. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Catherine Gibbs, Carrie Grinstead, and Heather Martin. We couldn't do it without them. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Join us in two weeks when we ask whether surgery is still a boys club and look at ways that women have been changing the profession. Best wishes to listeners in the U.S. who are celebrating Thanksgiving. I'm Sean Collins. For all of us here, we're thankful to Steve Silberman for joining us today and thankful for you listening. Be well. <laughs>